chapter 14. And if you didn't get a study sheet when you came in, why don't you raise your hand? We'll take just a second to get one of those for you. Anybody at all? All right, some of these good-looking graduates uh, missed getting one of those, and we can understand why. Uh, just keep your hand up long enough for one of the fellows to see it, and we'll get that to you. And the rest of us, why don't we open to Revelation chapter 14. I couldn't believe it when I went to the computer to put the date on the top of the study sheet. It's been a solid month since we've been in the book of Revelation. We've just had all kind of other things going on in the last month. So we'll pick up this morning in Revelation chapter 14. And I want you to know something as right from the get-go this morning. That the passage we're going to be looking at today is just absolutely, unbelievably incredible. Now, guys, for the last several years, we've been studying the Word of God together on Sunday morning, Sunday night. We've seen some incredible stuff in that book. Amen? I mean, you remember the days when we were going through the book of Ruth, and man, here we're seeing this Gentile woman who is from the cursed race of the Moabites who goes out into a field, and of all the fields she could have gone to, she goes to the field of a Jewish kinsman redeemer from the city of Bethlehem, and lo and behold, he takes one look at her, he lavishes his love upon her, and he takes her out of that field to become his bride. And you know what? If you don't understand that, then you're probably not going to understand how incredible that is. But for all of us that were here for that and understand what the, the big picture of the church age is all about, that's a pretty incredible book right there, you know? And then we went uh, on Sunday night. We were working through the book of Joshua. And over and over again, Frank was showing us how Joshua, who is, the, 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 the word Joshua is the Hebrew rendering of the, the New Testament word, what? Jesus. And we just saw over and over and over again how Joshua in the Old Testament is really just picturing for us the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it just incredible stuff. I mean, we went through church history and we went through the seven letters in the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and uh, those of you that were here, man, I'm telling you, the way that that thing breaks out in those, the, the, those chapters, it's just incredible. But when we're talking about incredible in this passage, we're not talking about incredible because of its depth. We're not talking about it being incredible because of how it all just so neatly fits together with all the other places. And when you see it come together, like in the book of Ruth, you're just in awe and you're just wowed all over the place. It's not incredible like that. It's, it's not incredible in the sense that we're going to take this passage and we're going to memorize this to bring comfort to our hearts in times of distress. We're talking about incredible because of the devastation that this passage is depicting for us. I, I mean, I'm telling you, y'all, when you see what's going on in this passage, and if you're a Bible believer and you really believe what God says, it'll blow your hair back. This is just probably like no other passage. There are passages like this one, but they're all referring to the same exact thing. And to be quite honest with you guys, the passage that we're going to read this morning is why most of the world and I'm talking about in Christendom, people who profess to be Christians, the passage that we're going to look at this morning is why most of the people who profess to be Christians do not believe in the pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ to this planet. Now, now listen, the passage clearly teaches the pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ. But because of what the passage teaches... The world doesn't want to believe in the premillennial return of Jesus Christ. Now, let me make sure that all of us understand the premillennial return of Christ. That's some heavy-duty words right there. There is a millennium. There is a kingdom that is going to be established on this earth by the Lord Jesus Christ where he will rule and reign on this planet for a period of a thousand years. Now, the picture that the, the Bible paints is that all of humanity and all of human history is going to get worse and worse 
and worse, and it's finally going to get so bad on this planet that Jesus Christ is going to have to come back and, bam, set everything right. Now, because of that big bam that we're talking about right there, what the world chooses to believe in the arena of Christendom is the world's getting better and better and better, and when we get it good enough, then Jesus Christ is going to come back to this planet and he's going to rule and reign, man. We're bringing in the kingdom. So, hey, let's feed the poor. Feeding the poor is real cool. The Bible tells us we ought to do it. I'm just telling you, most people do it because they want to bring in the kingdom. The reason that people are trying to live according to the principles of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is they believe that when we get it all right, we're going to bring in that kingdom. But you see, when you believe in the premillennial return of Jesus Christ, what, what happens to you is you come to a passage like this and, and you, you find out why it is that people want to reject the simple, clear truth of the Word of God. And the reason is because every time that the Bible talks about the premillennial return of Jesus Christ, it has to do with wrath. And it has to do with vengeance, it has to do with anger, it has to do with rage, it has to do with fury, it has to do with fighting and killing and stomping until blood is, is this high on, on people all over the world. And you see, because that doesn't fit with our brand of Christianity, because that doesn't provide us the warm fuzzies, that we want Jesus to give us, then we'll just put all of that on a back burner and we'll choose to ignore the clear teaching of Scripture or we'll choose to reinterpret it or we'll choose to, to spiritualize it. And, and listen, let's just all make sure that we understand this, okay? And this, this sounds cold, but it's the truth. The reason people reject this truth is not because... All of the teaching that surrounds it is, is vague and unclear. It's not like God has just, you know, left this in real obscure places and it's hard for us to be able to, to really understand all of this thing. You know what the bottom line really is, y'all? All of the teaching that surrounds this event is against modern man. And because it's against modern man modern man is against it you see it has to do with him and because it has to do with me then I don't want to believe it and again it's not because the scripture is unclear about this thing in fact on your study sheet and y'all are gonna have to start working with me now let me just show you some of the the, the subtle little ways that God has found in the Word of God to describe this event, okay? In Deuteronomy 32, 35, it's described as the day of calamity. In Psalm 110, in verse 3, it's described as the day of thy power. In Psalm 140, verse 7, it's described as the day of battle. In Proverbs 16, 4, it's described as the day of evil. In Isaiah 10.3, it's described as the day of visitation. Isaiah 13.6 calls it a day of destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 13.9 calls it a cruel day. Isaiah 13.13 calls it the day of His fierce anger. Isaiah 17.11 calls it the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. Isaiah 22.5 calls it a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity. Isaiah 27.8 calls it the day of the east wind. Isaiah 30 in verse 25 calls it the day of the great slaughter. Jeremiah 16.9 calls it the day of affliction. Jeremiah 46.10 calls it a day of vengeance that he may avenge him of his adversaries. Ezekiel 7, 19 calls it the day 
of the wrath of the Lord. Ezekiel 22, 24 calls it the day of indignation. Hosea 5, 9 calls it the day of rebuke. Joel 2, 2 calls it a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. Joel 2.11 calls it a great and very terrible day. Amos 1.14 calls it the day of the whirlwind. Amos 5.18 calls it a day of darkness and not light. Zephaniah 1.8 calls it the day of the Lord's sacrifice. Zephaniah 1.14 says it's a day when the mighty man shall cry bitterly. Zephaniah 1.15 says it is a day of trouble and distress. Zephaniah 1.15 continues on, a day of wasteness and desolation. Malachi 3.2 calls it the day of his coming. Matthew 10.15 calls it the day of judgment. Acts 2.20 calls it the great and notable day. Romans 2.5 calls it the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 2 Peter 3.10 says it's a day that will come as a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3.7 says it's the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And Revelation 16.14 says it's that great day of God Almighty. Now, do you understand why it is that people don't want to believe in this day? Do you understand what I'm talking about when I'm talking about incredible? And I want us, with that as a backdrop now, to begin to look at how John sees this day unfold. In Revelation chapter 14. And let's begin in verse 14. John says, and I, and I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And check this out, y'all. And the winepress was trodden without the city. And blood came out of the winepress, even under the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Now, Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us your heart on this. Lord, we do believe exactly what we read. And we know that the people that are being referred to here are people that today you stretch out your arms of love to embrace. But they willingly choose to reject you. And Lord, in these last days, we want to be used by you to do everything we can possibly do to, to get your message out to the people in our families, people that we work with, the people that we live near. We pray you'd open doors for us. And we pray you'd 
help us to understand the things that we've read this morning. We pray that you would use this passage to change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, obviously, we're, we're going to attempt to do this morning is try to make it through this passage. Sometimes I am a sick man. I know that. Um, and we're going to give it uh, the old college try. But before we actually get into the exposition of it and, you know, taking it apart, I think it's going to be helpful for us if we, we get the big picture of what's going on in the passage. Now, because I have spent an unbelievable amount of hours trying to cross-reference this thing and try to understand it and try to, you know, I'm looking forward to the day when I understand the book of Revelation and I can just enjoy going to it. I, I'm just telling you, I ain't there now. I'm working for everything that I get, and as we say so often, I'm a week ahead of you, so don't read any past chapter 14, Okay. But before we get into all this, I think if we can maybe just get the big picture of what's happening here, we can understand this thing just a little bit better once we start going through it. Okay, what, what's happening here, this is on your study sheet, is there are two harvests. And at the conclusion of the two harvests, what happens is the Lord Jesus Christ establishes his millennial kingdom on the earth. Okay, so two harvests and then the millennium. Now, the first harvest, which we read about in verses 14 through 16, has to do with grain that is stored in a barn. The second harvest, in verses 17 to 20, has to do with grapes that are trodden in a wine press. Now, am I going too fast? Okay. Okay, now, the grain harvest has to do with a rapture of people who will be removed from the earth sometime just before the end of the tribulation period. Okay, now, now listen to what you just heard. Think about that. Okay, this is not the rapture of the church that we're anticipating. This grain harvest has to do with a rapture of people that will be removed from the earth sometime just before the end of the tribulation period. And the grape harvest has to do with a gathering of people who will remain on the earth, and these people will be gathered to fight the battle of Armageddon. Is Armageddon a blank, blank for you? A-R-M-A-G-E-D-D-O-N. A-R-M-A-G-E-D-D-O-N. And these people will be gathered to fight this battle at the second coming of Christ. Okay, so you're starting to get this in your mind? Now, I, I'm not asking you if you can teach all of it and you can explain it. I just want to make sure that you understand. Grain harvest has to do with a rapture at the end of the trip, or close to the end of the tribulation period. The grape harvest has to do with a gathering of people to fight the battle of Armageddon at the second coming of Christ. So, what we've got here, what the passage is all about, it's teaching a post-tribulation rapture, and it's teaching the battle of uh, about the battle of Armageddon at the second coming of Christ. And, and, and I'll tell you, once you begin to see that that's what the passage is, is talking about, and that's the events that are being described here, what you begin to see is that the Bible is just absolutely packed full of things that are picturing what we're seeing in this passage. I mean, you go back into the Old Testament, and you begin to look at the Feast of Tabernacles. And before the Feast of Tabernacles, check it out, there was, a, there was a grain harvest and there was a grape harvest. And just like this passage lays out for us, before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to tabernacle on the earth in his millennial kingdom, and again, that's what the Feast of Tabernacles was pointing to prophetically, but before that event takes place, before he comes to tabernacle, on the earth or dwell in his millennial kingdom, there's going to be both a grain harvest and a grape harvest. And then you go back and you begin to, to start looking at the prophecies of the Old Testament. We're going to do that this morning. I mean, you go back and you look 
at the prophecies of David. You look at the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Nahum and Amos and Joel and Zechariah and Zephaniah. And you know what? Every single one of them are talking about the event that we're talking about right here. And what is so incredible about it is they use the same exact terminology. They use the same exact language that we see right here. But not only are the, the events in this passage pictured in the Old Testament, they're also pictured for us in the New Testament, in the parables of Jesus. And, and let me take you back to one key one that really will unlock this passage for us. Turn back for just a sec to Matthew chapter 13. Okay, now how many of you feel like you're, you're with it right now? You understand what we've talked about so far? Okay, I feel better. Okay, now it's, it's really not that hard to understand. You just get some of these big pieces of the puzzle put together. Matthew chapter 13, and of course in Matthew chapter 13, it begins talking about the parable of the seed and the sower, and then it moves into the, the parable of the wheat, and the tares, and that's the one that we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 13, let's pick up in verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared, appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He, he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest and in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, now this is a pretty familiar parable to most of us, and like we've always been told, the tares are representative of counterfeit believers, you know, people who make a profession of faith uh, in Jesus Christ, but have no possession of Jesus Christ, and of course the wheat represents those who are the true believers in Christ, and that's all well and good, and like I said, that's what we've always been told that this means, but listen, if you want to know what it means, let's don't listen to what some guy told us it meant, or Pastor Mark, or anybody else, if you want to know what it means, go right here, man, Jesus tells you right in the passage exactly what he meant by what he said, look at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Now, we didn't understand what you were talking about there, so would you explain that to us? Okay, he says unto them, verse 37, he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear. Let him hear. Now, now listen. This is so key. What Jesus is explaining right here in this passage finds its fulfillment in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. Okay, so let's, let's go back there once again, and let's start working our way through the passage. Okay, and we're going to look, first of all, at the gloriousness of the grain harvest. This is in verses 14 through 16. The gloriousness of the grain harvest. And as I mentioned uh, a minute ago, th this harvest depicts the rapture of tribulation saints to glory. 
And the first thing that John sees is, letter A on your outline, the first thing that he sees is the reaper of the harvest. The reaper of the harvest. He says in verse 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And I think all of us know who this is, right? Who, who is this? This is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Now, check it out. In Matthew, Matthew 13, he was the sower. Revelation 14, now he's the what? He's the reaper. Okay, and notice John says that he was like unto the Son of Man. Now, that's a very key phrase in the Bible. The first time it's used in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20 where it says, the, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And, of course, the reference there has to do with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is the last time that you find the phrase, the Son of Man in the Bible, it's found right here in verse 14. And in this reference, it has to do with the second coming of Christ. The first reference had to do with his poverty. The second reference here has to do with his power. The first one had to do with his humanness. The second one has to do with his deity. And, and let me take you back, not, not to the first time that it's used in the New Testament, but the first time that you see the phrase used prophetically to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and that's in Psalm 8. Why don't you turn back there, if you would, Psalm 8. And Psalm 8, of course, is a, a messianic psalm, and, and what that means is it's a, a, a song that is a prophetic psalm. It speaks of a, a future event with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and that's real easy for us to see once you begin to get into this passage. Look at Psalm 8 and verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and suckling hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And here it is. And the son of man that thou visitest him for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands thou hast put all things under his feet and it's very obvious who this is right the son of man is none other than the lord jesus christ the one that god has put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen yea and the beasts of the field the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. You remember that Leviathan passes through those, don't you? And of course, Leviathan is, yes, and he has put Leviathan who passes through the sea under his feet. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And I want you to listen now. See, the Jews would have understood very well that that phrase back in verse 4 was being used to identify their coming Messiah. They would have understood that he would be the one that Isaiah talked about would be Emmanuel. He would be God with us. In other words, he would be God in a human body. And because of his humanness, look back at verse 5, right here in Psalm 8, because of his humanness, he was made a little lower than the angels, and yet in that human body he still was 100% God, and so he would still be crowned, as verse 5 goes on, he'd still be crowned with glory and honor and have dominion over all things. And you see, when the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene and he starts using the phrase and referring to himself as the Son of Man, they, the Jews would have understood Psalm 8 as a messianic psalm referring to the Son of Man. Let me show you another place over in Daniel chapter 7. And you'll see further what the Jews would have understood about the Messiah coming as the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7. And look at verse 13. 
Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, exactly what John just said. One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And again, the Jews understood very clearly that God was going to visit this planet in a human body so that he would be called both Son of Man and what? Son of God. And you see, that's why as you begin to go through the New Testament and you begin to see Jesus using that term, the Son of Man, referring to himself, you see, to us, it just sounds like such a a low term, but because of Psalm 8, because of Daniel chapter 7, the Jews would have understood that the Son of Man was the Messiah, that he was in fact God in human flesh, and that's why every time the Lord Jesus Christ brought that up, that's why it just absolutely infuriated and ticked off the scribes and the Pharisees, because they understood that he was claiming to be God in their midst. And now, now go back to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14 I want you to notice the way John says that he saw this one that was like unto the Son of Man first of all number one on your outline he is sitting on a white cloud John says and I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man now we've talked about clouds on several different occasions in our study of the book of Revelation what we've seen is that clouds are the clothing of his, of his what? Of his glory. Good job. The clothing of his glory. And we could take the rest of the morning to just show you the references on, on that. And this, this white cloud that, that John sees him on is something that you see over and over again in, in the Bible. The white cloud that John sees the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on, sitting on here is the same cloud in Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. Just jot that reference down. It's the same cloud in Exodus 13, 21 and 22 that went before the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. It's the same cloud in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 9 that was present at the giving of the law. It's the same cloud in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5 from which the Father spoke at the transfiguration of Christ. It's the same cloud in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9 that received the Lord Jesus Christ out of the sight of those that were gathered on that hillside as he was ascended back up to the Father. And just like those two angels said as they looked at that group of people and said, listen, what are you guys doing? Gaze and listen. That he is going to come in the same manner as you've seen him go. How'd they see him go? On a, on a white cloud. And he says, listen, when he comes again, that's the way that you're going to see him. On a white cloud. And when he comes for the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17 says it's going to be in the, in the clouds. When he comes back to the earth at the second coming, Revelation 1-7 says, behold, he cometh with clouds. And again... That's the cloud upon which John sees the Lord Jesus Christ sitting in verse 14. But not only is he sitting on a white cloud, number two, he's wearing a golden crown. Now this, this crown isn't the diadem. This isn't what he's wearing in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 12 when he actually comes to the earth at his second coming. Now remember, when we're in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16, are you listening to me right now? When we're in verses 14 through 16... He is not actually coming back to the earth. He, John sees him, and he's on a white cloud. And he's wearing, again, not the diadem, not what he's wearing when he comes at the second coming in Revelation 19, 12. What he's wearing here is the Stephanos crown. He's wearing the victor's crown. And gold in the Bible, of course, represents deity. And here what you have is God, who was God manifest in human flesh, coming in victory to claim his own at the end of the tribulation period. And that's what the rest of verse 14 is about. The end of verse 14 says that he is also holding a sharp sickle. He's sitting on a white cloud. He's wearing a golden crown, and he's holding a sharp sickle. And a sickle, of course, is an instrument of, of harvest. It's an instrument of reaping. And I think it's, it's worth noting here that the first time you see God give instruction in the Bible that has to do with a sickle, 
It's in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 25. You, you don't need to turn there. Just, just listen and jot the reference down. Check me out later. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25. And what God says in this passage is that when you come into someone else's field, listen to it, thou shalt not move a sickle into thy neighbor's standing corn. In, in other words, what God is saying, you can only reap with a sickle in a field over which you have authority. You can only reap with a sickle in your field. You got it? Listen, when he comes, like he's coming in Revelation chapter 14, you can bank on it. When the Lord Jesus Christ wields his sickle on this field that we saw in Matthew chapter 13 is the, the world, you can bet that he's going to do it according to Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25. He's going to do it according to the law because Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 says that he didn't come to destroy the law but to what? But to fulfill it. And he's going to wield that sickle on the earth because Psalm 24 and verse 1 says the earth is the, the, earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. He'll use that sickle on the field that is called the world because that's his field. He'll wield that sickle because Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all power was given unto him in heaven and in earth. He'll wield, wield that sickle because as Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 27, the Father hath given him authority to execute judgment, listen to it, because he is the Son of Man. And listen, don't think for a second that when God laid down his law concerning the use of a sickle reaping a field that he didn't know that one of these days his son was going to reap with a sickle this field that is called the world. The reason that's sitting back there in your Bible is because Jesus was going to come and he was going to fulfill that thing. And everything that you see in the Old Testament isn't just indiscriminately written there. I mean, we go back and you look at that in the book of Deuteronomy and you say, who gives a flip whether or not we know whether you use a sickle in the field or you use your hands? God says, I put that there because my son is going to fulfill that. He is the fulfillment of the law. You know what? I, I can't wait till we get to heaven and we find out all the stuff we missed in this book. You know? Because, it, listen, it, nothing is in there indiscriminately. Okay, so that's the reaper of the harvest. Now let's look at letter B, the ripeness of the harvest. And we see the ripeness of the harvest, first of all, in the readiness of heaven. The readiness of heaven. Look at verse 15 again. John says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap. And what we find here is that in that temple, coming from the presence of the Father, who Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 36 and Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, that the Father hath put times and seasons in his own power. And from the temple where the presence of God is, the message is sent, that it was time for the Lord Jesus Christ to thrust in his sickle and reap. The time had come for that great separation of the wheat and tares. And, and what we find is that heaven is more than ready for that event to take place. Verse 15 says that when the angel came out of the temple with the message, would you look at it in verse 15? He cried with a loud voice. I'm telling you folks, heaven's been waiting on this event for a long time. And when it finally comes, man, the angel bursts out of there with a loud voice. Do it, man! Go for it! But the ripeness of the harvest isn't just seen in the readiness of heaven, but secondly, in the ripeness of the earth. The end of verse 15 says, For the harvest of the earth is ripe. You see, the harvest couldn't be reaped until the fruit was ripe. And you see, this is the fulfillment of, of James chapter 5 and verse 7. We're so close. Why don't you just turn back to the, to the left just a little bit. James chapter 5 and verse 7 
I'm telling you, the Bible fits together, y'all. He, he says in James 5, 7, Behold, the husbandmen... Who, who's that, Matthew 13? Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain, which is a phrase describing the end of the tribulation period. And the husbandman, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, has been waiting patiently for almost 2,000 years now for the precious fruit of the earth to ripen. And John tells us here toward the end of the tribulation period, Revelation 14, that fruit is going to ripen. And once the fruit is ripened, that's when letter C, we'll see the reaping of the harvest. The reaping of the harvest. Look at verse 16. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Okay, now, now remember, okay, now, now think with me and work with me, y'all. In the parable that we looked at just a few minutes ago in Matthew chapter 13, the Lord explained that the harvest would take place at the end of the world. And what he said is that it would take place in two stages. He said, first, the tares would be gathered together into, do you remember what it said? Into what? Into bundles. And those bundles would be left out in the field. And then later... Those bundles would be cast into the fire and would be burned. Okay, now that's the first stage. The gathering of the tares into bundles to where they're left just standing out there in the field. And then secondly, the wheat would be gathered and taken out of the field and placed safely in the husbandman's, what? In his barn. Okay, so to make sure we understand what's going on here. The, the scene that John is seeing in Revelation 14 and verse 16, that the same thing that Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 13, this isn't when Jesus has actually come back to the earth at his second coming. Again, this is sometime just before the second coming, and it is a rapture of tribulation saints. It's the same thing that Jesus was referring to in Matthew chapter 24. In verse 31, when he said, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now listen, if you understand this, it's going to help you a bunch to clear up a lot of the false teaching that's going on today with regard to the rapture. And you see, there are people that teach about the rapture that say that, you know, they believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that Jesus Christ is going to come for the church before the tribulation period begins there's other people that believe in a post-tribulation rapture that Jesus Christ is going to come for the church at the end of the tribulation and just before the second coming of Christ there's people who believe in a mid-tribulation rapture and there's a, a whole new teaching that's going on right now that is really getting popular among fundamental uh, circles and that is a pre, what, pre-wrath rapture. I didn't know if you guys knew all about that deal or not. Okay, now, now listen. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't claim to be any authority or any great scholar or anything like that, but I'm just telling you, this is not really that hard, y'all. Once you understand that the Bible teaches that there is more than one rapture. And you see, I'll just, I, I promise you, all of this stuff that is going on about, you know, do you believe in a, a pre-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation or a pre-wrath rapture? You know, what do you believe about all that? I'm just telling you, all the confusion comes from people not understanding there's more than one rapture. Yes, there is a rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. We're all, all of us that know him are going to be a part of that thing, and we don't have one thing whatsoever to do with the tribulation period at all. 
Okay? It's the same thing that's laid out for us in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Nineteen times in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the church is mentioned. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, heaven opens, there's a trumpet, there's a sound. Someone on the earth is caught up and gone to heaven with the, the, the voice, come up hither. And you know what? After that event, the church is no longer found in the book of Revelation. It's pretty easy to understand where the rapture is. There is a rapture for the church, but there is also a post-tribulation rapture that comes at the end, and I promise you, all of the people that get them themselves messed up in this thing are people that have lost sight of what the Scripture clearly teaches here in Revelation chapter 14 with the gathering of the wheat, and as Jesus talked about there, the, the elect coming from the, the four winds of the earth, and, and this, this, this rapture that you see in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 24, Revelation chapter 14, rapture is something that takes place seven years, or at least seven years, after the church has been raptured out. Okay, so that's the first phase of the second coming of Christ, where the Lord Jesus Christ will separate the wheat from the tare, and he'll rapture out of his field the wheat and store it safely in his barn. And again, that's the gloriousness of the grain harvest. But like we talked about earlier, there was a, a, another harvest that John sees here in verses 17 through 20. And, and listen, the other one's glorious because Jesus has found tribulation saints. Listen, it's going to be hard, y'all, to be a tribulation saint. I mean, you're going to go through incredible suffering in order to fit that bill. It's going to be a glorious harvest. But, but the one he talks about in verses 17 through 20 is something quite different. And it's what I'm calling the goriness of the grape harvest. The goriness of the grape harvest. And in contrast to the grain harvest, which was a, a gathering of tribulation saints to glory, the grape harvest is the gathering of tribulation sinners to Armageddon. And, and like the grain harvest, the grape harvest also has... Two stages. First of all, the gathering of the clusters of the vine of the earth. And we'll see this in verses 17 through 19. The gathering of the clusters of the vine of the earth. Now, now look at verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And, and I don't know if you remember or not, but back in, in chapter 6, and it's been so long since we were there, why don't you, why don't you go back to Revelation chapter 6 for a sec? Hey, do you remember in, in Revelation chapter 6, John saw the souls of them in verse 9 who were under the altar in heaven? You see that there? And verse 9 tells us that these people who had been martyred during the tribulation period, and it tells you why, for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and do you remember their prayer in verse 10? Man, it just, I, I remember going through, it broke my heart, man. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And do you remember the answer that was given them in verse, seven, or verse 11? Verse 11 says, And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season till their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. You know what God's saying? There's still a lot of people that still got to die before this can happen. And obviously, you can go back to Revelation 14. In verses 17 through 19, the last one of their brothers was killed. And listen, there have been thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of them to this point. But listen. Somebody that's no doubt alive on this planet right now is going to be the last one 
that's going to be martyred on this planet. And when that last one is in, Jesus is going to say, all right, that's it. And he's going to move to answer the prayers of these souls that were where? Under the altar. And, and I think it's interesting, look in verse 18, that it was an angel that came out from the, from the altar, which had power over fire, that cried unto him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully wrathed. Do you know how long that angel has heard those souls under the altar crying out, How long, Lord? How long until you get your vengeance on those people that shed our blood? And that angel is just waiting. Just waiting for that last one to come in. And it finally comes in and he says, Oh, go for it, man. Thrust in your sickle. And and let that be a reminder to all of us of at least two things. First of all, God may not always answer your prayers right away. But that doesn't mean that He hasn't heard. It doesn't mean that He doesn't care. And it doesn't mean that they're going to go unanswered forever. God knows when the time is right, and when the time is right, if we prayed according to His will, He will answer. So listen, keep on praying. And until he answers, trust his timing. Because you don't want to get an answer to prayer in the wrong time. And God knows exactly when is the right time. But not only does this remind us that God won't let our prayers go unanswered forever, it also reminds us that you can't get away with sin forever. Numbers 32 and verse 23 is still true, y'all. And you know what? It's going to be true until Satan is cast along with the wicked into the lake of fire. Numbers 32, 23, you know it? Be sure, what? Your sin will find you out. The sin of wicked nations and individuals is going to be dealt with. And that's what John is seeing here in verses 17 through, through 19. And, and, and to understand what's, what this is really all about, I want you to notice the phrase at the end of verse 18. He says, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather, and here, here's the phrase, the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Okay, now, now check it out. He, he talks about the clusters of grapes of the vine of the earth. Okay? Now, who is that? Now, do you remember in, in John chapter 15, in verse 1, Jesus didn't say that he was the vine. Jesus said that he was the, the true vine, right? Now, if he is the true vine, then it would lead you to believe that there is also a a false vine, a false vine that produces false grapes. And, and let me take you back to a prophecy that was, was made hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, way back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. And this is a, a prophecy that God gives to, to Moses in what is called the Song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32. And look with me at verse 31. I mean, you've got to love this already. For their rock is not as our, capital R, rock. Okay? Just like we were talking about there being a, a true vine and a false vine, there's also a true rock and a false rock. Okay, and that's obvious here. And in the context, that false rock, small r, is none other than, you know, the Antichrist. The true rock, capital R, is not only made plain in the context, he's specifically defined as the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. 
And, and Moses sings here, look at this, For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Everybody knows that. For their vine, okay, which is equivalent to their rock, okay, so there was a false rock, you got a false vine, and, and look, look further in, in verse 32. For their vine is the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. You see, now, now listen. With the Jews, all of their life, they were familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 32. They all knew the song of Moses. And they all knew that they were to be expecting a false rock. They all knew that they were to be expecting a false vine that was going to produce false grapes that would be clusters of gall. They understood that. Jesus comes along one day in the temple and he says, I am the true vine. Ding, 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 ding. And they all understood. And he says, now listen, and ye are the branches. And you see, now, now go back to Revelation 14, 18. You know what's happening in verse 18? This is the harvesting of the false vine. And what that means is that the vine of the earth is the Antichrist. Okay, now, now it's coming together. Now, now, now think with it. Take some good notes right here. What that means is the vine of the earth that we see here in verse 18 is the Antichrist, and the clusters of grapes will be the fruit of the vine of the earth. Or in other words, it's going to be the nations and those individuals who follow the Antichrist. Okay, so the vine of the earth is the false vine. It's the Antichrist. The clusters of grapes are the people who follow the Antichrist. They're the fruit of the Antichrist. And, and the fact that the end of verse 18 says that our grapes are fully ripe means that, that evil has so come to the place of consummation on this planet, the, the people of this planet have so reached the point of arrogant defiance of God that God finally says, you know what, it's fully ripe. And that's as far as I'm going to let this go. And what he does is he thrusts in his sickle and he gathers the vine of the earth. What he does is he gathers the Antichrist and all of his fathers, look at the followers, and look at the end of verse 19. He gathers them and casts them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the great winepress of the wrath of God is what we refer to as Armageddon. He's going to take that sickle. When all of the, the fruit of the Antichrist is ripe, he's going to take that sickle and he's going to gather it all together and it's all going to come together at Armageddon. And you know what? I wish we had the time to show you what's going to happen with that. It's horrendous what I'm going to do next week. We're going to find our way in verse 20 when he not only just gathers those clusters of the vine, but what he does is once they're there, the Lord Jesus Christ himself begins to trod on them just like you would trod on grapes in the wine press. And that's what we're going to look at next week. And now listen. Oh man, I wish we could have. I wish we could have finished today. I, I don't know. I, I listen. Believe it or not, I tried to streamline all of this. It, there's just so much here. It's just hard to to get you to understand everything that that's there, and and, and cut out any more than we did. But I want you to listen. Some of you are here today. You're discouraged. You're depressed because you have prayed and you have prayed and you have prayed, and God hasn't answered your prayer. Listen. God's listening. You just hang on and trust His timing. Others of you, your life is in such disarray. Some of you that profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Others of you that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And you just keep clicking along, doing the things that you know you shouldn't be doing. And you've made it through thus far, and you think you're all right. 
and you think you're going to get by. And Numbers 32, 23 comes to play. Be sure. Your sin will find you out. And for some of you that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you continue on in the path that you're going, you will be the people. If you make it that far through the tribulation period, you will be the people that are being talked about in this passage. And listen, for God's sake, would you heed his warning? The reason he put this in this book, the reason he brought you to this room on this day is to arrest your attention. Because today, God in his love stretches out his arms and wants to receive you. And as our service is being concluded, if you'd like to talk to someone about what it is to receive Jesus Christ, we'd be more than happy to spend whatever time we need to spend with you to show you today from the Word of God how you can come into a personal relationship with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Now, Lord, I, I pray that you would, you would sober our hearts in light of the, the truths that we've seen from your word today, pray that our lives would be forever changed as we see this and we see how all of these things will unfold in the very near future. I pray for the people in this room that don't know you as their Savior today. I pray that they would respond in obedience to, to your call. May they heed the things that, that they've heard this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.